Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be with you this, uh, this Sunday morning on what we call Gaudet Sunday, which means rejoice. Um, and so I pray that it is a day of rejoicing for all of us. If we have not yet met, my name is Dan. Um, it is hard to believe that my family and I have been here for about six months now, so we're still relatively new, uh, but settling in, and uh, it really, it truly is and has been a joy uh, to, to be a part of this growing church family and getting to know so many of you. And if we haven't met yet, uh, I cordially extend you the invitation to in, buy me a beer anytime that you would like to um, so that we can remedy that because it truly would be my joy. So let's jump right in. Uh, on, this, uh, on this third Sunday in Advent, we're going to be in the book of James, chapter 5, starting at verse 7. So as you turn there or type in the numbers there, however you're going to get to James 5, starting at verse 7, uh, let me give a bit of a foundation for, uh, for how we read this text and that we can, that we can build on. In case you've not been here the last few weeks at Redeemer, uh, this is the season of Advent, as, a, as uh, Alan explained earlier. And it's the first season of the church calendar. And the name of the season comes from the Latin word Adventus which was translated from the Greek word parousia, which means coming. So Advent is about the coming of Christ. And author Robert Weber says this. He says there are, there are really three Advents. The first is remembering the first coming of Christ at his incarnation, when we sing all the really um, sort of sappy, overused, theologically bad Christmas songs that we sing all the time, like away in a manger, guys. Come on, that's just... Oh, I mean, I love the song, right? But the baby cried. That's, uh, he cried. He, it, it, it happened, whether the song says it or not. So remembering the first coming of Christ, the first time at his incarnation, and not just the moment of the manger, but everything that led up to it, the prophets who, who proclaimed his coming and foretold the coming of the Messiah, we remember the thrust of history that led up to that point and all the promises that were made and how they found their fulfillment in Jesus. So we remember his, his first coming as we, as we head towards Christmas. That's the first advent. But there's a, there's a second advent as well, and that is that Christians believe that Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to come back. There's this great moment at, uh, uh, at the end of one of the Gospels where, where Jesus has died and he's been resurrected. He's appeared to his disciples. He spent some time with them. They go up to the top of the mountain, uh, and Jesus is raised up into heaven. And he's raised up, and they, they see him go into the clouds. And it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture, because they're all standing there. You can just picture all the disciples, like Jesus just ascended into heaven. And then suddenly, two men in white appear behind them. It says, I love it that it appears behind them. And they come up, and they kind of go, what are we looking at? Right? And, uh, and so these, these angels have come to say, hey, why are you staring into the clouds? Because don't you know that one day Jesus is going to return in the same way? So Christians believe that history, just like there was a trajectory of history that led to the coming of Christ the first time, the promises, the prophets that all found their fulfillment, that yes, they actually came true. The Messiah, Jesus, actually came in his incarnation the first time 2,000 years ago. Well, now we have promises that he is going to return. 
And because we have thousands of years of history to prove it, there's a lot of credibility when God makes promises because he's always fulfilled them. And so how can we not see the promises he's making now of Christ's return as, well, he's always fulfilled his promises in the past. It's very likely this is going to happen again. So we await as Christians the coming of the Messiah again, this time to make all things new. St. Augustine said it this way, The first coming of Christ the Lord, God's Son and our Lord, was in obscurity. The second will be in the sight of the whole world. When he came in obscurity, no one recognized him but his own servants. When he comes openly, he will be known by both good and bad. When he came in obscurity, it was to be judged. When he comes openly, it will be to judge. Christians believe that there is a trajectory of history that is leading towards the coming of Christ who will make a new heaven and a new earth, who will restore what is broken, who will bring streams to the desert, who will feed the hungry, who will restore the lonely into families, who will dry the tears, who will heal the sickness, and there will be great rejoicing. That's where we believe this is all headed. No matter what else is going on in the world and how bad we think everything is getting, the trajectory of history for those of us who are Christians, we believe that it actually ends really well. And that's the great hope of Christians. Now, now, this is also called, though, the return of Christ is called the great and terrible day of the Lord. Because it truly is both. Because whereas redemption is coming and and true healing is coming and sin itself will be removed from this world and everything that we are saddened because it is broken and twisted will be made straight and it's great and hopeful and exciting, there's also the truth that is also a day of judgment. It's also a day when the righteousness of everything will be judged. Now Christians look upon this uh, with excitement. Because of what the Messiah, what Jesus did during his first advent. When he came to be one of us, he didn't just come to visit and tell us he's going to come again. He came and he brought salvation to the world. That the reason that that the incarnation, that God becoming one of us, that the, the first advent of the Christ, the reason that it is so wonderful and exciting is because of what the Lord did then on the cross. He came to take our sins upon him and pay the penalty for our sins, to remove them from us, to make us righteous in the sight of God, and to defeat death itself in his resurrection. So now, the scripture tells us that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. It's kind of like when you're driving down the road and you, you come around a corner and you see the police car there on the corner um, and you look down at your speedometer and you go, oh, I'm actually all right. I'm going to be okay. Like, he's not going to follow me. It's going to be fine. There's a confidence in the midst of the authority um, because you know you're right in their eyes. And when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead, as we say in our creed every Sunday, we can approach his throne with confidence, not based on our own merit or our own goodness or, our, or, our, or what we have earned, but on the merits of Jesus himself and our faith in him and the gift of grace that he has given to us. So we come with confidence, excited that because of what Christ has done, that this new heaven and this new earth full of joy belongs to those who belong to Christ. 
And so this second advent is looking forward to that reality and that time that awaits us. Now, there's the third advent that we mentioned. What is this third advent? Well, Robert Weber says that what it is is, is that during advent, we want to see the reality of both Jesus' first advent and his second coming advent. We want him to be to reveal himself and to come into our lives and into our hearts in a new way this day. So the idea here during Advent is that we're bringing, we're bringing both of these bookends, if you'd call it that, the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And during Advent, we're saying, what, what do our lives look like now? What, what does that have meaning for us? How does that have meaning for us now? How should that affect our behavior, thoughts, actions, pursuits now in the middle of these two great truths? This is what Advent is all about. In the book of James that, uh, that we are looking into here, this is exactly what James is dealing with in his letter that he wrote uh, to the church and that we're going to look at this morning, is asking the question, how do we live now in between? Because it's, it's really impossible to think, if we just stop and think for a minute, to say, yes, I believe that God himself came to be one of us in the person of Jesus that he died on the cross for our sins, that he, that he defeated death in his resurrection, that he rose again, that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and I believe that he is going to come again, but neither one of that has very much bearing on right now. That makes no sense at all. Either these things are true, and it has every bearing on every moment of everyone's lives, or if they're not true... Why are we here? But there is no middle ground. There is no in-between. The gospel is either everything or it's foolishness. But what we can't be is mediocre. What we can't, what we can't do is hear these truths and not be shaken by them. What we can't do is simply be Christians by habit. Or by, because we show up in a certain place on a Sunday morning at the right time with the right dress on. We have to be shaken to the core by these truths. And so James starts to speak into that here in his letter. And he says this, James 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. So the first thing he talks about is patience. We're going to get to that in just a second. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. So one of the things that he is telling us is in the midst of, in the middle, between these two advents, between these two great comings of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says be patient. But patient is not apathetic waiting. If you don't care about something, nobody says, come on, be patient. I don't even care it's coming. I want to be patient. But when we're anxious about it, when we're excited, when we're longing for something, that we are told, be, be, be patient. Be patient. There's an intentionality in patience. There is a restrained urgency accompanied by a longing for what is coming. Patience is active. It's active. Two words that Advent, the season of Advent, introduces to us in our lives are expectation and preparation. 
first an expectation that we live in sure expectation of the return of Christ. It's going to happen. It's only a matter of time, but there, there is waiting involved. There's an expectation. And this should be a major factor in the life of the Christian. It shouldn't be something that we just focus on during Advent. Do you know there's over 300 references to the return of Christ in the New Testament? That's one out of every 13 verses in the New Testament talk about his return. That means it should be quite a significant reality for us. And all of us fall into the trap of busyness and, and, uh, and becoming myopic, focused on, our, on what is in front of us and the difficulties of our days and the stress and, the, and our schedules and our busyness that we can go for days, weeks, months without contemplating the return of the Lord. And James is saying, no, 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 there should, be a, there should be a patience because it's a reality that is ever present for us. Could today be the day? Could right now be the moment? Could this be the hour? Any day? Any time? Could this be the day? And when we think something big is coming, when we know something big is coming, we think and we live differently. Not too long ago, uh, my wife Karen and I and the kids, uh, we ate dinner with Buddy and Sarah Hookut. Many of you know Buddy and Sarah. They're sitting over this way somewhere. Hi, guys. Um, and, uh, uh, and this was a few months before their daughter Lydia was born. And, and when we were there, we joyfully talked about her most of the time. And we never even met her. Right? We, we talked about her, and, and Karen and I reminisced about, oh, this is what it was like for us when we had, when we had our kids, when they were still cute and smelled good. And, uh, and, uh, and we talked about the things that happened in the past, and we talked about, oh, oh can't wait for you, about what you're going to be able to experience in the future. And there was this joy and this reality of that moment. Oh, yeah, she's coming. She's coming. And there was an excitement and an expectation about that. There was an intentional waiting, but an intentional waiting, when you, when you know you're going to have a baby, you don't just go, well, yeah, we've got to figure some things out about nine months from now, right? There's an expectation and there's a preparation, right? I remember, I remember when, uh, when Karen told me that she was pregnant for the first time, and, uh, and she came to me and she told me we both kind of said, oh my gosh, what have we done? And then, uh, and we, and you know, we cried a little bit, and then we, we went that evening to, to Barnes and Noble, because this is the way that we're wired. We went to Barnes and Noble and bought like 14 books, right? <laughs> I had like, what dads should expect when they're not the one that's inspecting, but somebody else is expecting, and you should be expecting with them. Like, we got that book, and we got like, how to change diapers. I mean, like, we had all of these books that was, that was, that was a preparation for the time. When we spent time with Buddy and Sarah, and we went, we went into their house, we actually went into the nursery. They didn't have a baby in it yet, right? But it was painted, and the crib was already assembled, and there was a diaper changing station over to the side, and there was a rocker, because you look at it and you go, this is what all the stuff we're going to need when, when our daughter comes. There's preparation. There's an active aspect of waiting. And so James uses the example of farmers, and he says they sow their seed, and then they, they wait patiently. But you know farmers, they don't just sit and like play the banjo until things pop out of the ground. Right? They're, 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 they're weeding. They are, they're making sure that 
varmints don't get, that's a good farmer word, their they're varmints don't get into their crops. I mean, they're, they're, they're putting up scarecrows. I don't know what all farmers do, but they're protecting their crops, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, they are. Um, there's an activity, an, an activeness in, uh, in, in their waiting as, as farmers, but because they know that there is going to be fruit. They know that something is growing, and so they're preparing for that time. And so James tells us to live in expectation and in patience in this active waiting, and then he, he gives us some examples. He's not exhaustive by any means in this list, um, but he gives us a couple of things to start to focus on. What should we be doing in our expectation and in our preparation? And so in verse 7, he says, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's the first command that he gives to us. He says, so in light of all of this, first coming, second coming, you living in the middle, um, a patience, uh, establish your hearts. What does he mean by that? Well, the heart is the, the place of passion and perspective and pursuit it's when he's when he's talking about our heart. It's not just our physical heart. Like Jesus is coming, get your cholesterol under control. That's not what he's saying. He's saying are the passions of our lives, the things that we're hungry for, longing for, hoping for. Are they in the right direction? I mean, that you wouldn't want to know that you're pregnant and prepare to get a puppy. Right? Like you don't buy chew, well I guess you do buy chew, chew toys. You don't, you, don't buy, you don't buy a dog bed for the floor, right? You don't buy a bowl to put on the floor. When you know what's coming, you have the proper pursuit of you've got the right things for the nursery. What about, what is your heart preparing for in your life? What is your mind preparing for? Are you pursuing things and chasing after things and valuing things that will mean anything at all at the second coming of Christ? That's a hard question for us if we really sit and ponder and think about the direction and the focus of our lives. Will the things that we are passionately pursuing have any meaning at all when the Lord Jesus returns? And if the answer is no, James is calling us to reevaluate. Because not everything is going to be destroyed when the Lord Jesus comes. He is going to make all things new. And the things that are great and wonderful and beautiful and noble and pure, those things will be kept and elevated in the world to come. Those things that are sinful, those things that are broken, those things that ultimately bring about destruction and separation from the Lord will be removed. Are we pursuing the things of the Lord? Establish your heart. And look, this is a big phrase because Paul says the same thing. So James wrote the book of James. Paul wrote a lot of other New Testament letters, and he says the same thing to the Thessalonians when he spoke to them about the coming of Christ. He says, establish your hearts. The author of Hebrews, um, that he, we don't know exactly who wrote Hebrews, but the author of Hebrews says that we need to strengthen our hearts through grace in light of the coming of Christ. So this is a big theme within the scripture. We need to get our hearts focused on the right things. Now, previously in this chapter, we don't have time to go back into this chapter much, but part, part of what he's talking about here is that, that in, previously he's been discussing wealth and our stuff. So part of what he's talking about here is, is establishing our hearts in the right place. How is our view of our stuff and our wealth? Is this what's going to make us happy? Is this what we're pursuing? 
Is this what we're giving, spending our talents on? Is this what we're hungry more for? Are we generous people or are we, uh, are we stingy people? Do we see our stuff as only temporary things? Or if we're really honest about it, do we see this, our stuff and the amassing of stuff and the, and, the, uh, and, and the temporary joys that are in this life, do we see those things as the purpose of our lives? James is asking some big questions here because it's a big moment. Jesus is coming back. What will you present to him when he comes back? Look at all my stuff. Look at all the wealth that I've amassed. Look at how comfortable I was because I kept it all for myself. Or will you come longing for him, gladly knowing that your stuff has no more value? Because what you've truly been pursuing is Christ himself and his will and his ways. So he asks about our relationship with our stuff. Then he says this in verse 9, Do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So he starts to ask us then about not only our relationship with our stuff in light of this timeline that we're on, first advent, second advent, in the middle, how is our stuff, our relationship with our stuff, but then how is our relationship with each other? How do we treat one another? How do, are we grumbling against one another? And look, this is a grumbling culture that we live in right now. And we think that it's okay. And as Christians... For those of us in this room who are Christians, we have to, through the grace of Jesus Christ, rise above that. Like this whole really ridiculous conversation of, of like boomers and millennials yelling at each other. With, with, with boomers going, all these kids don't ever want to do anything, right? First of all, look, <laughs> when we're talking about millennials, we're not talking about the youth group, friends. They're about to turn 40. Okay, <laughs> let's, let's, let's move our sights a little bit farther up as to what you're talking about when you're talking about millennials, all right? And, and you can't paint them with one brush. And then for millennials to look and, and, and look at baby boomers and go, okay, boomer, right? Okay, we're just going to be sarcastic and cynical and roll our eyes at you. You know what? Neither one's okay. Neither one's okay. Neither one is okay. Because we're supposed to be valuing each other, loving one another, pressing into one another, the generations who are older, pressing into and loving the new ideas and new energy and freshness of youth, and youth looking to those who are older for the wisdom. Have they made mistakes? Yes, they have. And you know what? When you get to be that age and you turn around, you're going to go, look at all the mistakes I made too. Right? This is wisdom. They're supposed to be looking forward to learn from those who have, who have come before. Right? And the Gen X folks, the middle-aged people are like, you guys fight it out, I don't care. Right? Like We're just going to be on the sideline. See, this is not okay. We're supposed to be, James is saying, are you grumbling against one another? Really? Like this petty stuff about generational squabbles? Wake up! Jesus is coming! We're fighting about politics and we're, we're voting down party lines without looking at, at the truth of what the scripture says, that neither Republicans nor Democrats are perfect. And that we need to be voting the Christ party. The scriptural party. We have to, and we're squabbling about this stuff. And Jesus is going, what? Like James, I, read the book of James, because he does not mince words. I love him. He's like, he's like, you know what? If you don't do this, your faith is dead and you're stupid. I love James. Like he says that kind of in there. Um, and so, but, but what he's trying to say is, look, like all these squabbles and all this stuff that we're fighting over and all these things that we're yelling about each other at each other on Facebook, he's going, stop it. Jesus is coming. 
How many times in our lives do we need to go, stop it, Jesus is coming, to give us perspective on this world that we're living in? And this is what James is calling us to. Don't grumble. Don't amass stuff. Live your life in light of the fact that the Lord is returning. There's more to this life of patience than we have time to deal with here or that James deals with particularly. This is not an exhaustive list. But when he says establish your hearts and pay attention to how you're dealing with your stuff and with people, he's dealing with a lot of different issues all at the same time. And he says this. He says, I also realize that this is going to be difficult looking at life in this new and different way. And so he brings out the examples of the prophets. He says in verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He says, look at the prophets. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The Lord of the Christians should be different from the world. And your life should look different. And that leads to struggle and temptation and even persecution and suffering. And James tells us that we need to look at the prophets and at Job as examples of steadfastness and perseverance through those difficult times. The prophets and Job went through great suffering, but they didn't reject their faith. And they didn't compromise their life of holiness And they didn't try to justify the the truths that the world is trying to speak. They stayed true to the word of God and to a life that is difficult but worth it. G.K. Chesterton famously said, It is not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It is that Christianity has been found difficult and not tried. Our lives should be difficult because of our faith. It should be. Or else, maybe we need to press a little bit harder into holiness. Maybe we need to pursue Christ a little more deeply than we are. Maybe we need to take a little more seriously this timeline that we believe that history itself is on. Because the way of the world is not the way of Christ. And so if we're living in the world, our lives should grate against the way of the world. And if there is no grating, if there is no difficulty, if there is no suffering, if there is no temptation, are we we going in the same direction that the Lord is going? Or are we going the same direction that the world is going? We don't suffer just for suffering's sake, just because we somehow are more holy because we suffer. We, We endure suffering because the Lord is worth the purpose and the pursuit of our life. So in a few short verses, James is really trying to turn our world upside down. He reminds us of the the joy of the coming of the Lord. He exhorts us to establish our hearts and be intentional in our waiting. He warns us that this is a long obedience in the same direction that will require steadfastness and perseverance. And finally, he reveals to us that throughout all of this, God is wonderfully full of grace. He finishes this section of his letter by saying this, You have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Friends, this is our great hope through all of this, is that our Lord is compassionate and merciful, and His mercy is being lavished upon you in the coming of His Son the first time, and His coming of the Son the second time. 
So that we don't need to look at the coming of the Lord and then hold up our shame and our darkness and our wounds and what people have done to us or what we have done to others and feel fear and feel like we are unworthy, but rather we can look at all of that that has taken place in our lives and the darkness of our own hearts and the darkness of the hearts of others, and we can see that in light of the light of Christ that that darkness cannot stand. That there is no wound that you have been dealt that Jesus cannot heal. There is no sin that you have committed that Jesus cannot forgive. There is no fear that you have that Jesus cannot remove. That's That's the merciful and compassionate Lord that we have. And so the promise of his coming again is that we get to be even more closely in contact with that mercy and that compassion and that joy. And so, friends, through our suffering and through our grumbling against one another and then repenting of that and then, and then pursuing our stuff and then going, no, 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 that's not what I need. And that constant ebb and flow of righteousness and sin throughout all of it, what is made clear is how merciful Jesus is. His power is made perfect in our weakness. And one day the world will be made perfect by his presence. It is the grace of the Lord that saves us. It is the compassion and mercy of the Lord that attends us so that through Christ our striving and perseverance is not a striving with unknown results, but rather the victory has been won in Christ and our suffering and striving has value as we participate in the purposeful, as the, of the purpose of Christ. And so through the words of James this Advent, I want to challenge you with these things. Where is your heart established? What are you pursuing? Where is your hope? Are you feeling afraid or defeated? And hear the word of James that says, you are victorious. You are more than conquerors, as Paul says, in the name of Jesus Christ. That we can have a joy and a confidence in this Gaudette Sunday. We can rejoice because of what the Lord has done and what he is doing. But there is an aspect of repentance as well. When we need to examine our lives with the help of the Holy Spirit to look at where we need to repent of the things that we're pursuing that are not of God, that are not eternal, that are not righteous, but rather our own will. And in the end, won't matter at all. Where is your heart established? How's your relationship with your stuff? Are you generous? Is your hope more in what you amass or in what the Lord has promised? How are your relationships with others? How's your speech? How's your attitude? How's your driving? How's your perseverance? Is the reality of the coming day of the Lord shaping your action and giving you hope? Is the compassion and mercy of the Lord attending to you? Or do you recognize that this life is a life lived in the presence of God, but only in shadow, and that one day all that is in shadow will be brought into the light as what we can only see now dimly, we will see clearly and face to face. Overall, where do you need to raise your expectations where do you need to repent and prepare? Where do you need to be reminded of the promises of God? Where do you need to spend intentional time and action in your life in preparation of the reality of the coming of Christ? So this Advent, may the incarnation of the Lord be in the forefront of your mind. May the impending return of Jesus be ever before you. May your first thought each day as your feet hit the floor out of your bed be maybe today. 
may be today. And may your life be changed by the eminence of God and transform you as you live in expectation and preparation. Pray with me. Glorious Father, we are, we are amazed and awed by your grace and your love that you would send your Son to be one of us. By your intentionality, by your purpose that you would come to be one of us to bring us into uh, into righteousness and holiness and restore our relationship with you that you would do all of that at your expense at uh, by your planning by your forethought and as we as we move towards christmas lord let us let us let us fall to our knees in amazement over this gift of who jesus christ is and what you have done and then also let us turn our gaze upward to know that just as you have come and done amazing things 2,000 years ago, that you have not stopped working between then and now, and that you have promised us in the future that you will return when salvation will become complete with a new heaven and a new earth and a restoration of all things. And as we stand in the middle of these two amazing, awe-inspiring, life-altering truths, Lord, let us be patient. Let us have expectation. And let us be active in preparation of our hearts and our souls and our minds and our relationships. Let us pursue things on your timeline and according to your purpose and not our own. But to do all this, we need your mercy. We need your grace. And we pray that your spirit would fall abundantly in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.